Welcome to Public Health Out Loud, Public Health for the Public. Hi, I'm Dr. Jim McDonald, Interim Director of the Rhode Island Department of Health. And I'm Dr. Phil Chan. Welcome, everyone. Dr. Chan, I always look forward to our conversations. It's great to be hanging out with you again today. I can't believe we get paid to do this, um, which is amazing here. And today we're going to be talking about a very important topic, homelessness in Rhode Island. You know, health and the pandemic, there's a lot going on here. And, you know, I, I have a very soft spot in my heart for people who are experiencing homelessness. You know, it's a serious public health issue. It's, it's probably one of the most significant personal crises that anyone could ever face. Um, because shelter is one of those things that is not the same as a home. But if you have neither, we have problems here. So our guest today is Karen Santilli from Crossroads, Rhode Island. Karen, welcome to Public Health Out Loud. And can you tell us a little about yourself, like who you are and what do you do? Thank you. Thanks for having me and for sharing this really important topic. I'm Karen Santilli. I'm CEO at Crossroads, Rhode Island. I started here in 2008 as the marketing and fundraising person, and then in 2015, threw my hat in the ring to become CEO. So I lead an organization of amazing people that help the most vulnerable in our community. Thank you so much, Karen, for joining us. It's good to see you again. People may have heard about Crossroads, but why don't you break it down for us? What exactly is Crossroads? What happens at Crossroads? Yeah, that's a great question because folks often drive by our headquarters, the old YMCA, and and wonder what happens in that large building. So Crossroads is the largest provider of services and housing to individuals and families who are experiencing homelessness in Rhode Island. So what that means is we have a range of programs and services from crisis intervention, very basic needs for people who are new to homelessness, coming into homelessness all the way through to permanent supportive housing, which we actually also develop. So we not only provide the services that folks need to end their homelessness, that's our ultimate outcome by which we measure all our success. Are we ending people's homelessness and helping them stay housed all the way through to actually developing the housing that we so desperately need in this state? Yeah, Karen, it's a a vital topic. And I want to help you set the stage for us a little bit. You know, people experiencing homelessness, it's a national issue. Why don't we just talk a little bit more about it? Like, how big is this issue? How did we get here, by the way? You know, if you go back to, say, the early 80s, homelessness really wasn't the issue that it is today. It was primarily individuals with severe mental health issues, and there really wasn't that much of an issue. Sort of a a combination of things, deep recession a critical shortage of affordable housing, and then drastic cutbacks in federal housing funds really created the situation we're in today. And and we sort of see similar things happening in Rhode Island in particular. You know, we had the recession of 2008, incredible lack of housing, no new housing being created, really. And the trends are going in the wrong direction again. In Rhode Island, at any given point in time, pre-pandemic, we would expect to see about 1,000 people on any given night um, experiencing homelessness. Our most recent data were up to about 1,500. That's a significant increase for Rhode Island. For a small state like ours, it's just, it's a stunning number. You know, when I think about 1,500 people, it just... I mean, these are souls, people that matter, and they're just, and they don't know where they're going to be that night. It just, it's just a lot to process for a small state like ours. For sure, especially when a third of them are people and families, young children trying to just do their homework. 
Do you have a sense of how that compares to other cities? So we're obviously just south of Boston, New York City. What we've seen around, how does that compare? Do you have a sense of how that compares to other urban centers? Yeah. So if you if you look one st- t- statistic that I like to compare Rhode Islanders to our neighbors and other communities is the proportion of people who are experiencing homelessness but unsheltered. Prior to the pandemic, Rhode Island was in the top five states in the country for the lowest proportion of unsheltered homeless. We simply really didn't have street homeless in any significant number. Since the pandemic has occurred, we've seen almost a 70% increase in that number. And so we're seeing that across the country. We know that our numbers proportionately are lower in Rhode Island than our neighbors, but we don't have the housing affordable housing and the availability of affordable housing is a national issue. But in Rhode Island, it's even more of an issue because we have the oldest housing stock in the country. We're way behind on housing starts. And and I just have an issue with building a system, a response system around shelter and not around Mm -hmm. housing. And I think we should talk a little bit about that. Like, it's interesting. You talked about something called unsheltered homelessness, which I think intuitively... I, I think I know what it is, but I'd like you to kind of explain a little bit. And it really gets at large issues. What is the difference between solving homelessness and providing shelter? Because there really are different issues. Can you just help me understand that a little better? So imagine if you had a patient who came to you and they were sick. And I'm not comparing homelessness to a sickness. It's just an, a, a, an analogy here. So you said to your patient, I can cure your illness. guarantee cure your illness with this vaccine that's 100% effective. And with this vaccine or this medication, uh, there's a 90% chance that you'll never get this illness again. Versus that same patient with that same issue, health issue, and you're going to give him or her a cup of coffee and a blanket and, and try to keep them comfortable. But their health issue is still the health issue. That's the same thing as housing and homelessness in shelter. Shelter, it's important particularly for families or medically vulnerable people that that should not be out on the streets that have no other alternative. They have no other place to go. They have no family, no other resource where they can go. Emergency shelter provides them a bed and a place to stay, but it's not ending their homelessness. The only thing that does that is an apartment of their own. And we know when they have that apartment, every other issue in their life is easier to address because they have their own place to live. Karen, that all makes a lot of sense. And let me ask you this as an expert on housing, uh, certainly in the state of Rhode Island. I mean, we've heard so much about the housing crisis. If you had unlimited resources or, you know, with significant resources, at least, I mean, what can we do? What do we do to fix the housing problem in Rhode Island? Is it just a matter of building a, a bunch of new apartments? There's all this talk. How do we fix it? That's kind of the big question. I, you know, I don't think it's just one thing. First, it's it's political will and the willingness to invest. Then it's having the resources. I think we're at a situation in our state now where we have both of those things that we have not had in the past. There is political will. There are the resources with ARPA funds. Um, but then there's issues like land use and zoning. And every municipality has their own rules and regulations about where people can build and what kind of housing can be built. And and how many people can live in and how many units or families can live in those. So I think we need to take a multi-pronged approach to, to the issue across the state that includes 
how we use land, how we use abandoned properties. There's lots of commercial properties. There's lots of schools, nursing homes, former group homes that are sitting vacant. Let's be creative and use those properties and redevelop them for apartments that people can afford. I think it's a multi-pronged approach that includes all of those things. Mm, I, you know, I mean, I think very interesting. And I want to I want to just get into a new concept here, a little bit about like the connection between homelessness and public health. I mean, in, in our previous episodes on our podcast, we've talked about housing as a social determinant of health. You know, so like if someone doesn't have stable housing, you know, they got the extraordinary stress of not having stable housing. Uh, maybe and maybe some of the physical problems of just dealing with harmful exposure of weather. Uh, they might be living in a crowded space where they're at risk for communicable diseases, like whether it's COVID, the flu, hepatitis, or you know, or, or other diseases. Let me just ask you this, Karen: Like, are there other ways in which homelessness is a public health issue? Yes, yes, we know that, and this is a national statistic: the life expectancy of someone who has experienced chronic homelessness is 20 years less than someone who's never experienced homelessness. Oh, that's hard to hear. That's hard to hear. It's, it's, it's crazy. 20 years in this day and age. Um, We know that we know we have data that shows when people experience homelessness. I just, I talked to a mom two weeks ago who told me that while she was homeless with her children, she would go to the emergency department just to have a place to be and to get food to eat. For her family. That's terrible for the mom. It made her feel like a failure as a mother. It's terrible for the children. She's bringing healthy children into an emergency department where there are sick people as an alternate, as the last resort for her to be safe and have a place to think and, and feed her children. As a system, it's terrible for the system. Everybody's paying for that. We know that when we have housed an individual or a family, they're less likely to use the emergency department system for their primary health needs. We know that their children and themselves are more likely to keep their mental and physical health appointments. Their children are more likely to go to the doctor and get their vaccinations, go to school, stay in school and do better in school because they have a home, not shelter not living out of their car, but they have their own apartment and we provide them the wraparound services. And we, we track this data and we know it all improves. Yeah, thank you for that, Karen. And I wanna also ask you a question that this is something that we hear from time to time uh, in the community, other folks from talking about homelessness, uh, but there's a, a certain stigma, if you will, that surrounds homelessness. And some people have mentioned that, you know, why can't people just pull themselves up by their bootstraps and improve their situation? Why can't they get a job? A lot of other individuals in the community do that. How do you respond to something like that? Is being homeless, do some people choose to be homeless? How would you respond to that question? I would respond by saying every single homeless person that I've met, and I've met many, have never chosen to be homeless. The vast majority of them are working already. They are working really hard with their case managers here at Crossroads to end their homelessness, to find an apartment, to to do what they, because this, this is not, we're not ending their homelessness. We're working with them to help them in their homelessness. They're working really hard on that. How do you pull your, yourself up by your bootstraps if you don't even have bootstraps? How do you take a shower if you only have one set of clothes and you have no place to take a shower, you have no place to do your laundry? 
oral hygiene is one of the first things that goes when someone experiences homelessness and oftentimes or oral hygiene leads to teeth that don't look great and people often aren't smiling and they don't feel confident to go into a job interview and advocate for themselves when they're feeling so self-conscious about what their teeth look like, what their hair looks like, because they haven't been able to color their hair or get their hair cut. Or These are all basic things that we take for granted because we have our own bathroom and, and we can do these things in the privacy of our own homes. It gets really hard to do that when you're experiencing homelessness. Um, and so I, I get passionate about this issue and I get really kind of angry, especially, you know, people say, well, what's the face of homelessness? It's a lot of faces. It's the person handing you your coffee. Siren's it's- okay. I mean, it's interesting. <laughs> it's not a side effect we had it, but it is, it is really almost like you, you want to have that siren going off in your head, right? Because it's like, when you think about the stress someone's under, the, the personal emergency this is, like a siren seems like an appropriate sound effect. Um, so it's actually interesting how it was there when we were talking. But I, I want to just, you know, unpack this a little bit here, because I think you bring up some really important points. There's some other complexities around people experiencing homelessness. And I want to just talk about how Crossroads approaches this. When you have people who are experiencing substance use disorder, other mental health issues, how do people at Crossroads approach it when these issues are part of the whole equation that led to someone to be a person experiencing homelessness? Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. We, I want to be clear, we are not a mental health provider, but we do have some clinicians on staff that, and mental health navigators that help our folks navigate those systems of care in Rhode Island to connect them and refer them to the resources that they need, which is really hard, particularly in Rhode Island and particularly lately in the pandemic. One of the things that we do in the state of Rhode Island through our continuum of care is make sure that the people that have access to shelter are the, have the highest level of need. And so people with other resources, maybe we're diverting them away from the homeless system. Um, so the people in our shelters through the course of the last several years, we have seen have significant mental health issues. Many of them have, have been chronically homeless and, and our shelter staff traditionally aren't prepared to help address some of those significant issues. So what we've had to do to respond to that is to hire clinicians, which we haven't had in the past. And they're doing uh, case conferencing with our shelter staff and our case managers to understand what the mental health needs are of the folks who are in our shelters and in our housing programs, and then referring them to the partners that we work with in the community. So uh, organizations like Thrive and BH Link and the Providence Center and Project Weber Renew, these other organizations that are expertise in, have the expertise in mental health and substance use that we're connecting our clients to, making sure that they're making those appointments, following up, filling their uh, prescriptions, going to the to their medical appointments. That's what our case managers do, so they can get those resources from the experts. You know, Karen, it's interesting hearing you talking. I mean, I'm on, as a physician on the other side and as someone that cares for a lot of HIV patients, for example, and adherence to medications is so important in HIV, uh, where you have to take that pill one today, keeps you alive, it prevents you from transmitting to other people. But I often tell people, you know, my staff for sure, and students, and as I teach, 
that, you know, if someone doesn't know where they're going to sleep that night, uh, then they're not going to worry about, you know, taking medication for that day. Uh, so it's just, it's interesting hearing you talk from the from the, the housing perspective about uh, some of these uh, physical mental illness, and then from the clinical side, we definitely see the impact of housing uh, and how it affects these sort of different health outcomes. And that also brings us, I think, to COVID nineteen, which uh, of course the pandemic has impacted every facet of our life. But talk to us about COVID uh, in in your setting in the in the housing community, in the homeless community. How did you see the pandemic impact homelessness and and even your work here in Rhode Island? Yeah, thank you. I started sort of feeling a little traumatized when I was thinking about the last two years. There were so many pivots and lessons learned. And and first, I have to do a shout out to to you folks and your teams and the information that you were providing, because at the very beginning in, in March 2020, we pulled out our crisis response plans from H1N1. And we thought, all right, we, we have a plan. We're good. You know, <laughs> then we quickly realized that that just wasn't enough and started following Rhode Island Department of Health's guidelines and guidance every single day to help us try and make sure that we had the most up-to-date information. Our goal very early on and this is not being overly dramatic, our goal was just to make sure that we were keeping people alive. We have a tower here at 160 Broad Street. It's permanent supportive housing. We have 176 formerly homeless individuals living there. It's not shelter. It's permanent supportive housing, but it's the old model of single room occupants. So on every floor, there's 24 people who have medical issues that are sharing bathrooms. They have no private kit kitchen and cooking facilities. So there was congregate dining room uh, meals that were happening every day. We run Harrington Hall in Cranston, which is the state's largest night-to-night shelter for men experiencing homelessness. We had 112 men in one room in bunk beds. It's horrible. 112. That's not good and healthy when we're not dealing with a global pandemic where people are supposed to be six feet apart. We have a women's shelter here in the basement of our building where we had 41 women. And suddenly our board member, thankfully we had him, uh, Dr. Fine was on our board and he said, you have got to decongregate your shelters. Like people are going to die. And suddenly we recognized we just needed to figure something out. So we started erecting um, tents. We had huge like wedding tents in our parking lot. And then there were windstorms and torrential rains, and that wasn't an issue. And so it was like minute to minute, day to day. How are we keeping people alive? How tr- Showing people how to properly wash their hands was a huge thing. Making sure that people were wearing masks that covered their mouth and nose. I mean, that was so hard. It sounds simple for us. It was so hard for some people to, to understand how to do that. And so... It impacted everything we did. But one thing I am so proud to say was that we never stopped focusing on getting people into apartments. You're hitting on that success story. And I think it's important to talk about success stories because there is success here. Like, you know, you talk about an apartment building with three digit numbers worth of families living in there. How would that happen? Because that's pretty impressive to me. Like funding fell from the sky. What happened there? Tell me that story a little bit, if you don't mind. It was, you know, we never stopped working. Our staff was here 24-7. 
And, and every message was wash your hands, wear your mask, spread out. There was an incredible amount of information coming from the department of health, going right to our clients. And then we started really strongly advocating to put people into hotels. And that's what we did. We started putting people into hotel rooms and then we started testing and then we started pushing uh, vaccines. So sort of how it went with the state was how it went with us. And we didn't see clusters of outbursts of cases. And I, I think it was just following the science and communicating to people in a way that they understood how important it was to do all of these mitigation things, washing hands, wearing masks, staying apart from each other. Um, and then resources did fall from the sky. We were getting donations of hand sanitizer and masks and, and, um, and our staff suddenly were running testing clinics and vaccination clinics and, um, and put, being able to put people in hotels kept, kept people alive. Yeah, I mean, that. Uh, thank you for all your work in that setting. I do remember that uh, we've had several conversations over the course of the pandemic, uh, certainly related to this community. And, you know, the challenges as you we've discussed, as you've mentioned, are just, you know, incredible. And there's been no easy solutions. And it got to the point where we just essentially rented hotels to keep people in, to keep them distant. And I think that that was remarkable and certainly not sustainable. Uh, but it also sort of brings up this question of, healthcare access, and we've sort of touched on some of this, but do you feel like these folks have access to healthcare? Is it adequate access? What can we do more as a clinical community, perhaps, or even a public health community to, to do better uh, and improve health outcomes? I mean, are we okay where we are? What do we have to do? I think we can always do better. I think one of the success stories out of the pandemic was people started talking across sectors, which I think is critically important, and there needs to be more of that. For sure, there was a lot of meetings and communications with with all practitioners. There is access to healthcare. There's not enough. There's not enough access to mental health supports. There's, uh, you know, folks, and I don't know if this is in the population across Rhode Island or just our population, but we need to meet people where they are. Transportation is an issue for our folks, even when they are housed. They often don't have a way to, to get themselves quickly, efficiently, uh, and safely to, to, to doctor's appointments. You know, why can't we keep doing telehealth more and more and have insurance cover it? Misinformation is a huge issue. Making sure that we're talking to people about healthy ways to live in a way that's relevant to them, that they can understand and accept, I think is, is critically important for our folks. And we were able to do that. We had some doctors that came and spoke to our folks about how we're not really implanting microchips in people it, that the, that the, and, and that's, you know, I'm not, it sounds glib. I mean, that was out there. People were yeah. thinking it. And it could impact their health right. and their ability to stay alive if, if they continue to believe that. It does. And I think, you know, you get to that other issue is sometimes the best way to combat disinformation is one-on-one, heart-to-heart, mind-to-mind, eye-to-eye saying, let's have a conversation about what is it you're really you know, curious about, because, you know, it's really one of the things I've tried to do in my exam room when possible during the pandemic, when people are sort of telling me the things, it's like, what is it you really want to know? What really is your question uh, when it comes to this 
piece of information you have that, quite frankly, has gotten a little spun out of control. Mm -hmm. So oddly, believe it or not, we're actually coming to the end of our time together, Karen. It's really amazing how quickly that has gone by. I don't think we thought we would solve the problem of people experiencing homelessness in this 30-minute segment, but it was really good to talk about it, learn more. And I know I've learned something here, and I'm hoping our audience has been enriched as well. One of our traditions, though, at Public Health Out Loud is for Dr. Chan to give us our final word. Dr. Chan, what is the final word for today's episode? Wonderful. Thank you, Dr. McDonald. And I do want to give a shout out to Karen. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for your work in the community, for all that you do. Obviously, uh, very challenging with this setting, and you do an amazing job. So thank you for all your work. Thank you to Crossroads and your staff as well. So in closing, I do want to leave our listeners with a, a moment of Zen to consider throughout the week. And here it is. It's a quote from the Buddha. What lies behind us and what lies before us are tiny compared to what lies within us. Thank you all and be well. I want to thank Stephanie Menders, our executive producer, Carol Stone, our technical director. I'm Dr. Jim McDonald. Have a good and keep up the great.